Elder B.H. Roberts once said that Joseph Smith lived his life in crescendo. He considers the King Fala discourse to be uh, the, the climax in many ways of the prophet's great doctrinal teachings. Here's how he said it. The prophet lived his life in crescendo. From small beginnings, it rose in breadth and power as he neared its close. As a teacher, he reached the climax of his career in this discourse. After it, there was but one thing more he could do, seal his testimony with his blood. This he did less than three months later. I read the King Fala's sermon because it reminds me, A, of what I once was, and B, what I might become. And it gives me some hope. It says to me, keep, keep your eye on that distant goal, and one day you'll, you'll experience it. Um, I think it was Joseph Smith at his best. And uh, I revere him as the prophet uh, of the restoration. I don't even know if Latter-day Saints understand how important they are. I don't know that. I, to me, I'm still in awe of what the implications are of some of the things Joseph Smith taught. They are so profound. And yet, uh, it's just a glimpse. It's just, wow, is, is that what he's saying? If that's true, this is fantastic. Well, it is. And so I'm just so grateful for the three who actually took the time to, and, and the effort to actually take those down. In this great sermon, the prophet Joseph Smith taught in a most profound way who we are, where we came from, and the wonderful possibilities of what we may become. Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we compare Mormon and creedal Christian thought. King Fala Discourse today. Here we go. King Fala Discourse. I'll come back to this at the end. If this isn't doctrinal, what is? <laughs> and maybe nothing is. But <laughs> Joseph Smith... The prophet of the restoration in the last general conference of his life, in the sermon he took incredibly seriously, we have evidence of that, its impact was profound. It's the most published and frequently cited sermon of Joseph Smith. I think that would mean it's doctrinal. So let's, uh, let's dive in. This was 1844. What's going on? There's a lot going on. Joseph Smith had just announced a run for president. Yes, Joseph Smith ran for president of the United States, and he had uh, actually recalled the elders, the apostles. He's going to send them out to campaign for his presidency. Um, and we do have some inklings as to, that it's not just a quirky thing. He's running to win. And in fact, when he's assassinated in June of that year, a few months away, most of them are not going to be in Illinois, for that reason, they're going to be campaigning for Joseph Smith as president. There is a lot of opposition against Joseph Smith at this time, both from within and from without, from outside the church. Even the tension within, of course, we have to bring up 
especially in the summer of 1843, though this practice had been happening long before secretly, it was becoming more and more known, this revelation on spiritual wifery, on plural marriage. And uh, so (laughs) there were some expectations at this general conference of maybe even violence. Um, And we will see some of that hinted at in this sermon. Now, King Follett, who is this King Follett? I don't want to spend too much time on this. He's a gentleman who uh, was born 1788 in Vermont. Um, He's baptized at, I think, about 42 years old in the spring of 1831 in Ohio. He's going to move with the saints into Missouri. He's going to be part of the Mormon crusade in Missouri. We're not going to go into all of that, but he's going to eventually be imprisoned, uh, charged with robbery, which meant he probably stole ammunition, but we don't know, uh, with even Parley Pratt. I know on this podcast, we've talked a lot about Parley's brother, Orson. I think Orson Pratt is one of the five probably greatest Mormon thinkers. But let's not overlook his probably even more famous brother, Parley Pratt. He's going to be imprisoned with him. And in fact, a bunch of them are going to escape. Um, And uh, (laughs) King Follett will be recaptured. So he'll be acquitted in October 1839, moved to Illinois. He's a key member of the Nauvoo First Ward. And he's key in building Nauvoo. Um, and we know even probably where he lived. He was what we would call maybe upper middle class. He and his wife, six children, um, all there. And unfortunately, he's going to be involved in an accident uh, that Joseph Smith will refer to, where they are welling up a well, and a bucket of rocks fell on him. And he will die March 9th. Um, 1844, and um, he will be buried the next day, Sunday, March 10th. Um, This is uh, just out of the history of the church. This is Wilford Woodruff, I believe. Uh, Brother King Follett was buried this day with Masonic honors, and Joseph Smith will preach a sermon that day. That there's some confusion. A lot of people, and you might even encounter this, I encountered this uh, fairly recently, where people say, oh, that's not doctrinal, that was just a funeral sermon, or something like this. It's not just a funeral sermon. First off, um, depends on what you mean by funeral. Joseph Smith spoke the day he was buried in March, uh, on March 10th. Um, he's going to call the King Follett Discourse a funeral sermon in, in honor of King Follett later, but it's a general conference address. In fact, his key general conference address, and we'll see much more than that in his own words. Okay, there's, um, there's a lot of, with these doctrinal changes more secretly, this is going to be a key moment where he publicly pronounces many things that pro, you know, definitely predate it but will put all members basically on the same page ever since, I would say. Um, at least if anyone's paying attention and reads and thinks a little bit. So this, um, I think, is, (laughs) I I don't know, this may be the closest thing to a Nicene Creed for Mormonism um, in terms of its influence. Now, um, General Conference opens... It's going to be five days. It's going to open on Friday, April 5th. 
And interestingly enough, I've got to point this out, that morning, they actually, Joseph Smith attends a dedication of a Masonic temple. <laughs> so he can't get I already mentioned masonry twice here. Then um, they will open the conference. This is how Joseph Smith opens the conference. And in the history of the church, he does say he, um, he because of ill health, that he will defer preaching the funeral sermon of King Follett until Sunday. Then Elder Amasa Lyman, oh, um, our regular listeners will recognize that name, Amasa Lyman, uh, <laughs> Mr. Mystical. Um, he addresses a very large assembly at the stand. Now, um, this opening address, I just want to read Joseph Smith's opening remarks. President Joseph Smith rose to state to the congregation the nature of the business with which would have to come before them. He stated that it had been expected by some that the little petty difficulties which have existed would be brought up and investigated before this conference, but it will not be the case. This is interesting. Three, these things are of too trivial a nature to occupy the attention of so large a body. I intend to give you some instruction on the principles of eternal truth. Principles of eternal truth. But will defer it until others have spoken in consequence of the weakness of my lungs. The elders will give you instruction, and then, if necessary, I will offer such corrections as may be proper to fill up the interstices." Those who feel desirous of sowing the seeds of discord will be disappointed on this occasion. It is our purpose to build up and establish the principles of righteousness and not to break down and destroy. The great Jehovah has ever been with me, and the wisdom of God will direct me in the seventh hour. I feel in closer communion and better standing with God than ever I felt before in my life. And I am glad of this opportunity to appear in your midst. I thank God, which one? For the glorious day which he, singular, has given us. In so large a congregation, it is necessary that the greatest order and decorum be observed. I request this at your hands and believe you will all keep good order. Prayer was offered by W.W. Phelps, after which the choir sang a hymn, and then we have Elder Sidney Rigdon get up to speak. Now, so Sunday, it's going to be Sunday afternoon, okay? About 3.15 p.m., and he's going to speak till 5.30 p.m. So this sermon was two hours, 15 minutes long. Uh, this is key to know because with what we have and what we have, and I'm going to get into some more of this after I go through the sermon, which is the most important part because I don't want to bore you all to death as to why we, how we know what we know from the wording of the sermon, but there were four scribes. Um, three official ones, which, by the way, shows that Joseph Smith really cared about this. This is the most attention he's given both to the documenting of a sermon and that the church will give to publishing a sermon of Joseph's um, relative to anything else. And uh, for those who want to say, well, we don't know what's all said, well, frankly, we have greater contemporary manuscript support for this than something like DNC 132, which is still in the DNC, just as an example. So I just don't, I'm trying to, why am I spending all this time on this? I want to make it absolutely clear that this is, in Joseph's mind, his work. This is the truth as he sees it. And this, as, and you're going to hear, well, that's me, that's, you know, doctrines put on the shelf. No, 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 no. I want over and over, and the, I, in fact, maybe I should have brought some, uh, Porter Rockwell whiskey here for a drinking game. Every time Joseph Smith says this is eternal truth or the gospel or the first 
principles first principles. I want to show that no. And in fact, those who take their Mormon theology seriously will see, will realize this was actually the milk. This is the milk. So, okay. What's the weather like? Warm springtime weather. This is beautiful scene. So we're in Nauvoo along the Mississippi River. We have blossoming trees all around, all along the Mississippi River. It had rained the previous day, Saturday afternoon. Now, in Nauvoo, they did not build meeting houses. So what they often did, most meetings were held outdoors. Um, so they had three different groves on the edges of a bluff. And uh, the, these, were, these groves were northeast, west, and south of the Nauvoo Temple, which at this time was about half completed. I think this was given in the northeastern um, grove, but I'm not totally sure. That's, that's where I think it is. And, and keep in mind, the bluff creates this natural amphitheater, and then the saints would have added wooden benches, so there were pews, and then a speaker's rostrum where Smith would have been speaking. Um, how many people were there? The number you often hear is 20,000, sometimes 15,000. The state census records from 1845 show 11,057 inhabitants in Nauvoo. Um, one scholar thinks probably more realistically they're 8,000. So was 20,000 an exaggeration? It's possible. Um, a number of anticipation, it's possible. It is possible that there were a bunch of non-members attending as well. Um, but of course, you think logistically it's pretty tough. And of course, we, don't, we can't really verify, but just there's a lot of people there. <laughs> a lot of people there. I, I probably think probably, what, 10, 12,000 people were probably there. Um, so here we go. Let's get into this. Joseph Smith. It says at a quarter past 3 p.m., the president having arrived, the choir sang a hymn. Elder Amasa Lyman, there he is again, offered a prayer. Joseph Smith delivered the following discourse before about 20,000 saints. This is, of course, the B.H. Roberts history of the church, being the funeral sermon of Elder King Follett. Okay. I now call the attention of this congregation while I address you on the subject which was contemplated in the forepart of the conference. As the wind blows hard, very hard, it will be hardly possible for me to make you all hear unless there is profound attention. It is a subject of the greatest importance and the most solemn of any that could occupy our attention, and that is the subject of the dead. I have been requested to speak on the subject on the decease of our beloved brother, Elder King Follett, who was crushed to death in a well by the falling of a tub of rock on him. I have been requested to speak by his friends and relatives, but inasmuch as there are a great many others here in this congregation who live in the city as well as elsewhere who have lost friends, their case will be had in mind this afternoon, and I feel disposed to speak on the subject in general and offer you my ideas as far as I have ability and as far as I will be inspired by the Holy Spirit to treat and dwell upon this subject. I want your prayers, faith, the inspiration of Almighty God, and the gift of the Holy Ghost that I might set may set forth things that are true and that can be easily or can easily be comprehended and which shall carry the testimony to your hearts. I pray that the Lord may strengthen my lungs 
stay the winds, and let the prayer of the saints to heaven appear, that it may enter into the ear of the Lord of Sabaoth, for the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There is strength here, and I verily believe that your prayers will be heard. I will speak in order to hold out. Before I enter fully into the investigation of the subject that is lying before us, I wish to pave the way, make a few preliminaries, and bring up the subject from the beginning, in order that you may understand the subject. Sorry. Understand the subject. When I come to it, I do not calculate to please your ears with superfluity of words, with oratory, or with much learning, but I, much learning, but I calculate to edify you with the simple truths of heaven. Oh, simple, simple truths of heaven. That's what he's saying. Okay. In the first place, I wish to go back to the beginning of creation. There is the starting point in order to know and be fully acquainted with the mind, purposes, decrees, and ordinations of the great Elohim that sits in the heavens. For us to take up beginning at the creation, it is necessary for us to understand something of God himself in the beginning. If we start right, it is very easy for us to go right all the time. But if we start wrong, we may go wrong, and it is a hard matter to get right. There are but very few beings in the world who understand rightly the character of God. If men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend their own character. They cannot comprehend anything that is past or that which is to come. They do not know. They, uh, they do not understand their own relationship to God. The world knows and comprehends but little more than the brute beast. If a man knows nothing more than to eat, drink, sleep, arise, and not any more, and does not comprehend what any of the designs of Jehovah are, what better is he than the beast, for it comprehends the same things. It eats, drinks, sleeps, comprehends the present, and knows nothing more about God or his existence. This is as much as we know, unless we are able to comprehend by the inspiration of Almighty God. And how are we to do it by any other way? Where's the role of Scripture here? I want to go back then to the beginning that you may understand and so get you to lift your minds into a more lofty sphere and exalted standing than what the human mind generally understands. I want to ask this congregation, every man, woman, and child, to answer this question in their own heart. What kind of a being is God? Ask yourselves. I again repeat the question. What kind of a being is God? Does any man or woman know? Turn your, thoughts in, turn your thoughts in your hearts and say, Have any of you seen him or heard him or communed with him? See, emphasis on experience. Here is a question that will, peradventure, from this time henceforth, occupy your attention while you live. The apostle says that this is, the, this is eternal life to know the only wise God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is eternal life. If any man inquire what kind of a being is God, if he will cast his mind to know and search diligently his own heart, if the declaration of the apostle be true, he will realize that unless he knows God, he has not eternal life, for there can be eternal life on no other principle." My first object is to go back and find out the character of the only wise and true God and what kind of a being he is. 
If I should be the man so fortunate as to comprehend God and explain to your hearts what kind of a being God is, so that the Spirit seals it, then let every man and woman henceforth put his hand on his mouth, sit in silence, and never say anything, or lift his voice against the servants of God again. But if I fail to do it, I have no right to revelation and inspiration, and it becomes my duty to renounce all of my pretensions to inspiration or to being a prophet, etc. Now, does this sound like doctrine? <laughs> I think that he's saying his entire prophet mantle, the entire mantle of prophet and prophecy, all this, rests on him being correct in this sermon. And to his credit, they, Nelson would never have the courage to even say it, though I don't think he would mean it, so maybe Nelson is more, more honest. But, you know, he says, if I fail to do it, I have no right to revelation, and it's his duty to renounce that he's a prophet. If I should do so, should I not be as bad as all the rest of the false teachers of the world? There's the shifting of the standards, right? So if I'm wrong, I guess I wouldn't be any worse than you know the Presbyterian down the street or whatever. They will all be as badly off as I am. They will all say I ought to be damned. There is not a man or a woman who would not breathe out an anathema on my head if they knew I was a false prophet. Some would feel authorized to take away my life, but you might just as well take the lives of other false teachers as mine if I were false. If any man is authorized to take away my life, who says I am a false teacher then? Upon the same principle, I should have the same right to take the life of all false teachers. And who would not be the sufferer and where would be the end of the blood? So if he's right, then he's better than everyone else. If he's wrong, he's the same as everyone else. Got it? All right. But meddle not with any man for his religion. Meddle not with any man for his religion. For no man is authorized to take away life in consequence of religion. Of course, unless they supposedly voluntarily commit uh, with curses um, to be blood atoned or whatever. Should they uh, not you know, give their life to the church or whatever. All right. All, uh, I mean, my, this sermon influenced the Brigham generation. So you have to look at the actions of the Brigham generation. You could say, oh, well, maybe they're inconsistent with Joseph here or whatever. But uh, if you look at what the temple was, what it involved... There's probably a glaring exception that because they volunteer, supposedly, into it, um, it can kind of mask the violence that was part of early Mormonism at times and with some. All laws and government ought to tolerate and permit every man to enjoy his religion, whether right or wrong. Got it? <laughs> Apparently, God, the gods gave humans rights to worship you know, false gods. Uh, see, it's very American. This is a very American uh, religion. There is no law in the heart of God that would allow anyone to interfere with the rights of man. There is no law in the heart of God that would allow anyone to interfere with the rights of man, says Joseph. Every man has a right to be a false prophet as well as a true prophet. If I show verily that I have the truth of God, show the world is wrong by showing what God is, and show that 99 out of 100 are false prophets and teachers while they pretend to hold the keys of God and go to killing them, would it not deluge the whole world with blood? I'm going to inquire after God because I want you all to know God and to be familiar with him. So that's his goal. He wants us all to know God and be familiar with him. If I can get you to know him, I can bring you to him. See that? 
if I can get you to know him, I can bring you to him. So what stands between you and the gods? Knowledge. This will let you know, and sorry, and if so, all persecution against me will cease. This will let you know that I am his servant, for I speak as one having authority and not as a scribe. Okay, so he's speaking as one having authority. What kind of a being was God in the beginning, before the world was? I will go back to the beginning to show you. I will tell you, so open your ears and eyes, all ye ends of the earth. Oh, wow, he's not just proclaiming this to the church even, let alone just a sermon at a funeral. This is general conference. He's proclaiming this to the earth. And here, for I'm going to prove it to you with the Bible. Okay, you got it, Christian? He's going to prove this to us with the Bible. I'm going to tell you the designs of God for the human race, the relation the human family sustains with God, and why he interferes with the affairs of man. First, number one, God himself who sits enthroned in yonder heavens is a man like unto one of yourselves. That is the great secret, exclamation point. I'm going to repeat that line. First, God himself who sits enthroned in yonder heavens is a man like unto one of yourselves. That is the great secret. That's the secret. That's the Gnostic key to all of Mormon theology. If there's someone who is LDS or any form of Mormon who does not, is not speaking from this assumption, I'm not sure what degree we can call it Mormon theology. If the veil, Joseph continues, if the veil were rent today, and the great God who holds this world in its sphere and the planets in their orbit and who upholds all things by his power, if you were to see him today, you would see him in all the person, image, fashion, and very form of a man like yourselves. For Adam was a man formed in his likeness and created in the very fashion and image of God. Adam received instruction, walked, talked, and conversed with him as one man talks and communicates with another. It's almost like Joseph Smith could have read, you know, in the Bible where God says, I am, and Smith could say, and I am too. In order to understand the subject of the dead and to speak for the consolation of those who mourn for the loss of their friends, it is necessary to understand the character and being of God. For I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. How God came to be God and what sort of a being he is. For we have imagined, who has imagined this? We have imagined that God was God from the beginning of all eternity. Who's saying that? Well, it's not just Christians, but certainly Christians. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so you may see. Truth is the touchstone. These things are incomprehensible to some, but they are simple. The first principle of truth. The first principle. First. Number one, principle of truth, according to Joseph Smith in the last general conference of his life. The first principle of truth and of the gospel is to know for a certainty this character of God 
that, and that we may converse with him the same as one man with another, to converse with God. It's the first principle. And that we may converse with him the same as one man with another, and that he w- once was a man like one of us, and that God himself, the Father of us all, once dwelled on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did in the flesh and like us. <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> This is Mormonism, right there. That's Mormonism. Uh, Take a sip. I will show it from the Bible. Okay, he's going to show us from the Bible. (laughs) You know, the Bible that says, you thought I was like you. God says that you thought I was like you. I am not a man, you know, things like that. But no, he's going to show us this great secret in the Bible. I wish I were in a suitable place to tell it. I wish I had the trump of an archangel. If I had the privilege, I could tell the story in such a manner that persecution would cease forever. The scriptures inform us, mark it, Brother Rigdon, that Jesus Christ said, what did Jesus say? As the Father has power in himself, even so has the Son power in himself. Now, when he's reading this verse, sometimes he'll say power, sometimes life. Those words are kind of interchangeable when Joseph Smith reads this verse. If you compare it with other places, he says something similar. Just so you know. To do what? So power in himself to do what? Why what the Father did? That answer is obvious. Even obvious, even in a manner to lay down his body and take it up again. Jesus, what are you going to do? to lay down my life as my father laid down his body, that I might take it up again. Do you believe it? If you don't believe it, you don't believe the Bible. The scriptures say it, and I defy all hell. We're going to see what he thinks of hell. All the learned wisdom and records and all the combined powers of earth and hell together to refute it. Remember, what is he just saying? The Father did what Jesus did in a life. Jesus saw it. Then Jesus lived a life as the Father and did what he saw his Father do. And that's what we're going to have to do. And what does he say this? What is, he says, the, this is what the Bible teaches. And that the answer is obvious. That's what he's saying. It's obvious. So when you have an LDS say, oh, that's meat. No, no, no. Joseph Smith doesn't. Tell me where, in this sermon, we're going through the whole thing as we have it, in the most academic version, which I probably should have said earlier. It's the Stan Larson, I think it's 1978, newly amalgamated uh, text from BYU Studies. It's the probably the best version we have uh, in terms of text criticism. But let's see if there's any exception to this rule. <laughs> nope, it's obvious, and the Bible teaches it. So, he continues. Here, then, is eternal life. Okay, he comes back to eternal life. What he just taught, this is the first principle of eternal life. To know the only wise and true God. You have got to learn how to make yourselves gods in order to save yourselves. You have got to learn how to make yourselves gods in order to save yourselves and be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done, by going from a small capacity to a great capacity, from a small degree to another, from grace to grace. Notice how he's using that word. It's ironic he's using the word grace here. Until the resurrection of the dead, from exaltation to exaltation, till you are able to sit in everlasting burnings and everlasting power and glory, as those who have gone before sit enthroned. 
I want you to know that God in the last days, while certain individuals are proclaiming his name, is not trifling with you nor me. Wow. Just ask yourself, does that sound like one life? Just curious. I want you to know the first principles of consolation. First. First. Wow. Man. It doesn't sound like he's saying, oh, you can put it on the shelf, deep on the shelf. No, the, these are the first principles of consolation. How consoling. See, this is his message of hope. This is the gospel of Mormonism. Eternal progression. Based on eternally existing law. How consoling, and aren't you consoled? The mourners, when they are called to part with a husband, father, wife, mother, child, dear relative, or friend, to know that they laid down this body and all earthly tabernacles shall be dissolved, that their very being shall rise in immortal glory to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sorrow, die, and suffer no more. And not only that, but to contemplate the saying that they will be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What is it? What does it mean to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ? To inherit and enjoy the same glory, powers, and exaltation until you ascend a throne of eternal power and arrive at the station of a God, the same as those who have gone before. Did you catch that? What does it mean? So, like in the manual when they're like, Oh, yeah, they, they do focus on that verse, and it's like, oh, yeah, be like Jesus and love people, whatever. No, no, no. Joseph, I mean, yes for them, but no, no, no. Joseph Smith just flat out says it. What does it mean in Mormon theology? I think Joseph Smith, if anyone can define Mormon theology, it should be this guy. What does he say? He defines it to inherit and enjoy the same glory as God, the same powers as God, really God's, God's, and exaltations until you ascend a throne, until you ascend a throne of eternal power, you do the ascending, and arrive at the station of a God, the same as those, plural, who have gone before. What did Jesus Christ do? Why I do the same things that I saw my Father do when the worlds came rolling into existence. Saw the Father do what? What did you see the Father do? I saw the Father work out His kingdom with fear and trembling. Notice what he's quoting there, whether consciously or not, from Philippians. For with fear and trembling, and I am doing the same too. When I get my kingdom, I will give it to the Father, and it will add to and exalt his glory. He will take a higher exaltation, and I will take his place, and I am also exalted, so that he obtains kingdom rolling upon kingdom, so that Jesus treads in his tracks as he had gone before, and then inherits what God did before. God is glorified. This is it. What is God's glory in Mormon theology? In the salvation and exaltation of his creatures. It is plain beyond comprehension, and you thus learn that these are some of the first principles of the gospel. First! <laughs> this is the beginning. This is the starting point. The first principles of the gospel. It is plain beyond comprehension, and you thus learn that these are some of the first principles of the gospel about which so much has been said. Would you climb a ladder? Here's the ladder. Ugh, those who have listened all year. The ladder. 
Uh, of course, it's a ladder. When you climb a ladder, you must begin at the bottom rung. You have got to find the beginning of the history and go on until you have learned the last principle of the gospel. So this is the first, and then you go on until you learn the last. It will be a great while after the grave before you learn to understand the last. It's not all meant for one lifetime, seemingly. Um, I wonder if there's a solution to that that would involve more than one lifetime. Hmm. For it is a great thing to learn salvation beyond the grave. See, there's no night that cometh wherein no man can work. No. It's a great thing (laughs) to Joseph Smith. It is a great thing to learn salvation beyond the grave, and it is not all to be comprehended in this world. In other words, you're not saved by grace when you're dead either. (laughs) Unless by grace you mean levels of heavens, I guess. I suppose I am not allowed to go into an investigation of anything that is not contained in the Bible. See, oh, what a burden. What a burden for the one true prophet of Jesus Christ to be so limited by the Bible. <laughs> if I should, you would cry treason. And I think there are so many learned and wise men here who would put me to death for treason. You see that charismatic anti-intellectualism and then the paradox of that. And then every time he tries to use learning, you know, see how smart I am. It's okay if I'm learned by the spirit, but it's not okay if you're learned by any books or whatever. This is just so assumed in this sermon. I will then, Joseph Smith will then go to the old Bible and turn commentator today. So he's going to comment and interpret the Bible for us. In fact, he's going, he says, I will go to the very first Hebrew word. Now, I'm not going to pause here. This is worth its own episode. In fact, I really, there needs to be more formal dealing with Mormon scholarship on this point. I'm trying to defend Joseph Smith's um, interpretation and exegesis, and of course, uh, they love the liberal theology on this stuff. So I'm just going to go through this, but if it sounds uh, gibberishy for those out there who do know Hebrew, and that if you do, you're likely one of the Christians listening. Um, remember, too, the scribes don't know Hebrew, although Joseph Smith said he would teach them not only Hebrew, but Egyptian, um, yeah, Reformed Egyptian, I guess. Um, but maybe, the, I, I guess to be fair, maybe the scribes are kind of messing up some of this, um, but still... Um, who knows? Uh, either way, you'll see, you'll see, you'll see what he's going to say. I will then go to the old Bible and turn commentator today. I will go to the very first word, Hebrew word, Bereshith, in the Bible and make a comment on the first sentence of the history of creation. In the beginning, I want to analyze the word Bereshith, bay in, by, through, and everything else. Next, Rosh, the head, if. Where did it come from? When the inspired man wrote it, he did not put the first part, the be, there. But a man, an old Jew without any authority, put it there. So it's the Jews' fault that it's <laughs> there. He thought it too bad to begin to talk about the head of any man. It read in the first, the head one of the gods brought forth the gods. The head one of the gods brought forth the gods. So that's his uh, translation of Genesis 1.1. And it should be uh, noted that um, there is, 
even um, a Mormon scholar who's done this with John 1.1, because, of course, the Christians can say, well, look at even John 1, in the beginning, right? Well, this is an uh, LDS scholar, a Mormon scholar, um, how he translated John 1.1 in this tradition of Smith, I would say. In the ruling council was a spokesman, and the spokesman was among the gods, and the spokesman was himself a god. So they, this is something they love to do, is kind of break down words and um, a lot of the etymological fallacies. So for those who don't know, can you imagine, um, this is the cliche, I guess, the Super Bowl. If you found you know, some letter from America, scholars thousands of years from now, using a completely different language, um, if they're trying to break down, what does the term Super Bowl mean? Um, a really big, and then a bowl, right? And they describe this bowl that we would eat food, you know, from. So it's a really big bowl. Of course, you totally miss it. So you, you have to be really careful with the etymological fallacy. Words don't only mean what their component parts uh, typically mean. And this is just not how language works. But first off, he, it's funny, he breaks it down. This says, well, this part, you know, an old Jew added without any authority. So he sees the problem. So he just t- takes that out and then plays word games with this. And this is his translation once again, and then I'll keep going. The head, one of the gods, brought forth the gods. Now notice, when uh, you run into an LDS, or if there's an LDS listening, when you say, no, we are monotheistic, uh, what do you do with this? Head one of the gods before the gods. This is what Joseph Smith, your prophet of the restoration, and, and tr- translates the first verse of the Bible to mean. Uh, clearly, Joseph Smith wants polytheism throughout the Bible, and he's going to say as much here in a minute. This is the true meaning of the words. Rashith, borrow Elohim, signifies the head to bring forth the Elohim. If you do not believe it, you do not believe the learned man of God. See, when it's him, learning is okay. No learned man can tell you any more than what I have told you. (laughs) Okay. Thus, the head God brought forth the head gods in the grand head council. I want to simplify it in the English language. O ye lawyers, O ye learned doctors who have persecuted me. I want to let you know and learn that the Holy Ghost knows something as well as you do. Wait, who's just talking? The Holy Ghost knows something as well as you do. The head one of the gods called together the gods, and the grand counselor sat in grand council at the head in yonder heavens to bring forth the world. Notice, bring forth, showing he's going to take on creation here in a second. Bring forth, so organize is where he's heading the world, and contemplated the creation of the worlds that were created at that time. When I say doctors and lawyers, I mean the doctors and lawyers of the scripture. See, you you pastors, you people who I think you need to go to school and actually learn languages and history and philosophy and these things. No, 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 no. See, Joseph Smith, he just has it by his experience. See? You see? So you lawyers, you doctors, you, you you're the ones persecuting me. It's a, you know, forget that, you know, the, some of the people that are going to be um, most, oppo- you know, most in opposition to him are going to be people from within his system. Okay. I want to let you know and learn that the Holy Ghost knows something as well as you do. The head one of the gods called together the gods, and the grand counselor sat in grand council at the head in yonder heavens. See, up there. 
yonder heavens, no transcendence here, to bring forth the world and contemplated the creation of the worlds that were created at that time. Okay. When I say doctors and lawyers, I mean the doctors and lawyers of the scriptures. I have done so hitherto to let the lawyers flutter and let everybody laugh at them. Some learned doctor might take a notion to say that the scriptures say thus and so, and we must believe the scriptures, for they are not to be altered. But I'm going to show you an example of an error. So... <laughs> Yeah, he gets bored fast. He translates the first verse, and he's already jumping. i got to show you errors so that you just trust me. Okay, so that's what he's going to do. He's going to take the time in his la what will end up being his last general conference address to prove to us there's an error in the Bible. I have an old book and uh, New Testament in the four languages, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and German, and that's kind of confusing to me. Like I said, this is probably the best uh, text of the King Follett discourse we have. Um, I'm not sure if New Testament, is he claiming there's a Hebrew New Testament? I don't know. I don't know if that's a scribal error or a Joseph Smith error. I have been reading the German. I'm sure he has. Um, I wonder if he uses Searstone for that as well. I find it to be the most correct that I have found. Okay, <laughs> See, he has the Greek, Hebrew, and Latin but he trusts the German the most. He just said that. The most correct I have found and find it corresponds the nearest to what? To the revelation that I have received. See, he has the truth, and then the Bible's useful insofar as it agrees with his truth. That he also says is everyone else's truth. That I have received and given the last 14 years, right? So he's dating it to the foundation of the church, which is interesting. And um, clearly, there's development and change on this. Um, I'll take a moment to say that someone like Van Hale, who's an LDS apologist, I think he might lean, uh, assume too much continuity. Um, but there are some scholars, I think, assume too much discontinuity. But clearly, there's development. Uh, Lectures on Faith is not the full-on polytheism. The Book of Mormon is not the full-on polytheism that he's teaching in this very sermon. But what does he say? I've been teaching this 14 years. He's going to say this again. And this is something that, once again, uh, for those who just who trust Joseph, they're going to take him at his word, assume that's true, and not think critically about, well, is even that true? No. What does this text say? Remember this New Testament in German? It tells about Jacobus. Right? The son of Zebedee, which means Jacob. In the English New Testament, it says James, the son of Zebedee. Okay? So he's, he's saying, oh, this says, right, Jacob. But in the English, it says James. See, this is an error, according to him. <laughs> but this is Jacob, the son of Zebedee. Now, if Jacob held, had the keys, you might talk about James through all eternity and never get the keys. See, so this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Actually, it's really not. So um, keep in mind that the Old Testament translating Jacob as Jacob, that, that's what we typically do when we translate for Old Testament texts. In New Testament texts, just the nature of the language Greek, we typically take the Hellenized or the Greek version of these names. So, Jacobus being uh, James, or even Jesus would be a Hellenized form of the name Yeshua, right? 
or in English Joshua. Um, it, it's not it's not an error. It's just how language works. So like the English name Jacob and James, they, they come from the same Latin, Jacobus and Jacobus. Uh, they're variants of the same name, uh, which is why, uh, so for those who uh, know their English royal history, English history, remember the Stuart Jameses? Who were, who were the supporters of the Stuarts, the Jameses? The Jacobeans, the Jacobites. <laughs> it was the Jacobean period, and the supporters were the Jacobites. See, this, is, this happens in other names. So like uh, um, Italian, um, you have examples of this in Spanish. Iago and Jamie come from the same name. Right, so it's it's in, in English, yeah. Jacob and James have tended to be thought of as two different names, but um, they they just come from the same name. So anyway, so there you go. I could say more on that, but hopefully, hopefully that's not too boring. But I just want to point this out as we go that it's one of these things. It's like when the Jehovah's Witness at your door is saying, uh, uh, "Oh, the shape of the cross or the date of Christmas," and they're trying to get you to, into this. Um, state of oh my goodness if that's a lie what else is oh i guess i have to trust these guys and anyway joe smith was very good at this okay so what's the big takeaway if jacob had the keys you might talk about james and then what would you do you'd have the wrong name of course so you know how are you supposed to get access to their power right wow Matthew 4.21, this is Joseph Smith. Matthew 4.21 gives the testimony that it is the word of Jacob instead of James. The doctors, I mean the doctors of law, not physics, say, if there say any, if you say anything not according to the Bible, we will cry treason. How can we escape the damnation of hell unless God be with us and reveal it to us? Men bind us with chains. See, that's not what Joseph's doing. See, he wants you to, I guess, trust him. But the, the you know, Christian pastors ministers. That's what they're doing. They're trying to chain you, I guess. The Latin says Jacobus, which means Jacob. The Hebrew says Jacob, which means Jacob. The Greek says Jacobus, Jacob. And the German says Jacob. I thank God I have got the oldest book in the world and the Holy Ghost. I thank him for the old book, but more for having the oldest book in my heart, the gift of the Holy Ghost in his heart. Here, I have all four testimonies, Greek, Hebrew, German, Latin. See how smart he is? Come here, ye learned men, and read if you can. I should not have introduced this testimony, only to show that I am right. And to back up the word Rosh, the head father of the gods. In the beginning, the head of the gods called the council of the gods. The gods came together and concocted a scheme to create this world and the inhabitants. When we begin to learn in this way, we begin to learn the only true God. Now, it's interesting. He does use the word singular. Don't know why. We find out God, unless he's meaning an impersonal category that anybody can but has the potential of becoming, and anyone who's attained that category can claim. That might be what's going on. We find out God and what kind of a being we have got to worship. Having a knowledge of God, we know how to approach him and ask so that he will answer. See that? Him answering is dependent on what, according to Joseph Smith. Having a knowledge of him and how to approach him. So he's, I guess, just trying his best and... You know, it's up to us to get the knowledge and experience and ritual and whatever. When we begin to know how to come to him, he begins to come to us. See that? When we begin to come to know him. Begin. Wow. Begin. So this is this is beginning knowledge. This is this is the milk. When we begin to know how to come to him, he begins to come to us. When we are ready to come to him, he is ready to receive us. 
As soon as we begin to understand the character of God, he begins to unfold the heavens to us and tell us all about it before our prayers get to his ears. It just reminds me so much of uh, the emphasis on names in the ancient world. And part of that was to have the name of someone is to have some, in some way, control over them. You know, if someone calls my name, even if it's meant for someone else who just happens to have the same one, right? I respond. Well, that's why these names are kept secret for the inner elite. Well, this knowledge functions that way. And then, of course, in the temple, it's explicitly that way, uh, if you know what's going on. Now, I ask all the learned men who hear me, why the learned doctors who are preaching salvation say that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing? (laughs) They account it blasphemy to contradict the idea. If you tell them that God made the world out of something, they will call you a fool. The reason is that they are unlearned. See, that's why we believe in creation ex nihilo. Creation, not only creation ex nihilo, I'll take it a step further. Creation into creation out of nothing and into nothing as well um, is what we believe. It's not just that. Um, and, of course, <laughs> the reason we think that is we're unlearned. But I am learned. See, Joseph is learned and no more than all the world put together. The Holy Ghost does anyhow. Wait. I know. <laughs> I am learned and know more than all the world put together. The Holy Ghost does anyhow. If the Holy Ghost in me comprehends more than all the world. Sorry, I'll just let that sit there. If, if the Holy Ghost in Joseph comprehends more than all the world, I will associate myself with it. Hmm. Interesting wording. You ask them why, and they say, doesn't the Bible say he created the world? And they infer that it must be out of nothing. The word create came from the word bara, but it doesn't mean so. But what does bara mean? It means to organize. It means to organize. See, once again, here's what a word can mean, and therefore that's what it must mean. It's it's silly word game stuff for those who study language. And and by the way, um, Biblical Words and Their Meaning by Moises Silva. Um, Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson. Uh, God Language and Scripture by Moises Silva. Uh, yes, I just uh, recommended two books by the same author. I highly recommend reading those books uh, to see how these word games are um, not accurate. <clears throat> the word bara, what does the bara mean? It means to organize. The same as man would organize and use things to build a ship. See that? So just let's just, uh, I don't have this before me. I didn't prep on this kind of thing uh, for today. But let's say, let's assume for the sake of argument that that word was used in a context of, I don't know, a bunch of men building something. That does not mean that when the word is associated with God, it would mean the same thing. It just doesn't even follow logically. Hence, Joseph, this is Joseph Smith, hence we infer that God himself had materials, materials to organize the world out of chaos Get that? Chaotic matter, which is element and in which dwells all the glory. Wow. Organize the world out of chaos. This is so in tune with all the pagan so-called creation myths 
that the Bible is correcting, is interacting with, is rejecting. Um, it's just so, <laughs> which even I, I agree with uh, John Oswald. These are not creation myths, but are organize the world into its current uh, pattern myths. Um, and here we have it. Joseph is bringing it back in. Uh, organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter. And then listen to this. This is one line that doesn't get enough attention, in my opinion, uh, on this sermon, which is element. So chaotic matter is element, so self-existent, and in which dwells all the glory. So not only does God not have glory in himself, the degree to which he has glory in himself, it's no different um, primally in its primordial state than the element you would find in, or sorry, the glory you'd find in anything else. Now, maybe that glory is heightened and as you progress or whatever, but you see, it's an attained glory relative to other things. It's not a self-existent glory where in the Bible, what does what uh, God say over, I share my glory with no other. I don't share my glory with anyone, which should give a clue when uh, Jesus says, the glory which I shared with you before the foundation of the world. Wait, I thought God didn't share glory with anyone but himself. Yep, one God, three persons. Element had an existence from the time he had. See that? So there is no beginning. There is no beginning, absolute beginning in Mormonism. So notice, it's it's so interesting. Think of it canonically. Think of it when you're interacting, when we're discussing these things between the two camps, right? Um, Mormon and, and Christian. And they say, we believe the Bible. And they don't even believe the first verse. Just re- remember that. They, they call it canon. <laughs> they might even dispute whether this is canon. <laughs> King Follett discourse. <laughs> but they will affirm the Shema. They'll affirm as canon. And yet they don't believe it. It doesn't function that way. But that, that there's just a whole cosmology to Mormonism that is so key to understanding how these terms function in the system. And this, this yeah, this does not get enough attention. And hopefully the regular listeners, uh, hopefully for, for y'all, we have covered this a lot, I hope, in almost every episode, because this is the context in which the word God or salvation functions. It's a context in which nothing began to exist and nothing can ultimately be destroyed. And so it's all a matter of progression according to eternally existing law that has no ultimate explanation. There's no God that created these laws. The laws, in fact, in a sense, predate God in his status as God, but don't predate his existence as an intelligence because nothing does. It's, right? So, element had an existence from the time God had, he had. The pure principles of element are principles that never can be destroyed. They may be organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. Sorry, I guess Joseph was just about to explain that point. Nothing can be destroyed. Nothing can be destroyed. They never can have a beginning nor or an ending. They exist eternally. It is associated with the subject in question, the resurrection of the dead. I have another subject to dwell on which is calculated to exalt man. Okay, Another subject to dwell on which is calculated to exalt man. But it isn't possible for me to say much but to touch upon it. Time will not permit me to say all. 
So I must come to what I wish to speak of, the resurrection of the dead, the soul, the immortal spirit, the mind of man. Now, uh, there are going to be debates over the use of these terms, uh, soul, spirit, intelligence, this kind of thing. It's kind of tricky uh, trying to get a consistent terminology uh, across Mormon thinkers. But whatever terminology is used, it's necessarily trichotomous. And uh, I will put it in the show notes. If you haven't read it yet, I highly encourage. Uh, if LDS, if you want to see why this is uh, dangerous to us. Christians, if you haven't, you should read it. There's a reason why Word of Faith and Kenneth Copeland and heretics like that are also this way. Um, and uh, Kim Riddlebarger, he's a Dutch Reformed uh, scholar, he calls it the beachhead for Gnosticism. Gnostic systems need at least three parts of the person, and here we have it with Smith. Now, let me read this a little more slowly, because he's going to use it a little different. What he's speaking about is the immortal spirit or the mind of man. Um, I would have used the term intelligence. So I would say the intelligence is the eternal part, the mind, right, the, the I am, <laughs> the little I am. And, and then that progressed to the point of getting a spirit body. And then those two together progressed to the point of getting a physical body. And, and of course, gods need, um, you write, spirit and body. And by the way, spirit is, is only just a different form of matter. So it's just a, two types of matter that somehow together are what gods need to have the power they do in an exalted state, including procreation. Um, so uh, it, it, Joseph isn't going to call it that, but he's clearly, when even though he says the immortal spirit, he says the mind of man. He does call it the soul as well. I think he's just trying to say that, yes, that the part without which you aren't you, right? Um, but uh, see, if, see if you agree. Where did it come from? All doctors of divinity, right, those Christians over there, say that God created it in the beginning. But it is not so. It is not so. So, one thing I love about this sermon is that it, it does focus mostly on essentials. So, remember, no transcendence, no beginning. Gods are exalted men, <laughs> and so can you. And the, so, <laughs> creation ex nihilo, the transcendence of God, the glory of God being inherent in the absolute trinity. No. Uh, none of that is correct, um, according to Joseph. The very idea lessens what what was the very idea lessens the character of man in my estimation. <laughs> There's the humanism. It's a form of secular humanism, just as Mormon cosmology is a form of, of philosophical naturalism or materialism. Are any of those things conservative? Just curious. All right. Where did it come from? So where did the mind of man come from? Um, well, clearly God didn't create it in the beginning. I don't believe the doctrine, he says. Hear it, all ye ends of the earth. All ye ends of the earth. Everybody, hear it. I know better, for God has told me so. Forget the Bible or what they say, what they're interpreting. No, God's told me so. I will make a man appear a fool before he gets through. If he doesn't believe it, it won't make the truth without effect. I'm going to tell the things more noble, more noble. We say that God himself is a self-existent God. Who told you so? It's correct enough, but how did it get into your heads? 
Who told you that man did not exist in like manner upon the same principle? Man is self-existent as is God on the same principle. He refers to the Bible. How does it read in the Hebrew? It doesn't say so in the old Hebrew. God, God made the tabernacle of man out of the earth and put into him Adam's spirit, which was created before, and then it became a living body or human soul. Man existed in spirit. The mind of man, the intelligent part, is as immortal as and is co-equal with God himself. There you go. There's the trichotomy. Let me just repeat that. Man existed in spirit. The mind of man, the intelligent part, is as immortal as and is co-equal with God himself. I know that my testimony is true. He bears his testimony. The prophet of the restoration bears his testimony that that is true. Uh, forget the part of Job when it says, where were you? Meaning you weren't there when I created the earth. <sighs> Hence, when I talk to these mourners, what have they lost? See, this is, this, is the, this is part of the consolation for those who have lost people to death and is, you know, what have you lost? You mourn the loss of friends and are only, uh, sorry, you who mourn the loss of friends are only separated for a small moment from their spirits. And their spirits are only separated from their bodies for a short season. But their spirits existed co-equal with God. And they now exist in a place where they hold converse together one with another the same as we do on earth. So death, is death really death there? I think it was Gordon B. Hinku who said, I don't agree with the word death. Should any Christian have this attitude? <laughs> Death's a full body amputation. I think it's, a, it's ironic. Yes, we are not only our body, um, but we were created embodied. And, um, you know, we're not immortal spirits trapped in bodies or using bodies or something like this. Death is a full body amputation. Um, death is horrible. It's unnatural. It's evil. And here Joseph's saying, don't worry. They're, in fact, they're, they're, they're conversing with each other the way we do here, just in the next stage of progression. I want to reason more on the spirit of man, for I am dwelling on the immutability of the spirit. Immutability. Not a unique attribute of God here. The immutability of the spirit and on the body of man, on the subject of the dead. Is it logical to say that a spirit is immortal and yet have a beginning? Because if a spirit of man had a beginning, it will have an end. But it does not have a beginning or end. This is good logic and is illustrated by my ring. So uh, I take my ring from my finger. You wonder if it's his wedding ring and, um, you know, to be wedded to one wife, right? Uh, and like, <laughs> like it unto the mind of man, um, the immortal spirit. Okay, so because it has no beginning or end, suppose you cut this ring uh, with his marriage vows to be faithful to Emma. Suppose you cut it in two. As the Lord lives, there would be a beginning and an end. So it is with man. All the fools in learned and wise men from the beginning of creation who come and say that a man had a beginning prove that he must have an end. If that doctrine be true, then the doctrine of annihilation would be true. See? 
See the logic? But if I am right, then I might with boldness proclaim from the housetop, from the housetop, that God never had the power to create the spirit of man at all. You see that? Next time you hear an LDS say, I believe God's all-powerful. Wait, what about this? God never had the power to create the spirit of man at all. God himself could not create himself. This is one of those memorable lines from Joseph Smith. So remember that. God himself could not create himself. Intelligence is eternal and exists upon a self-existent principle. It is a spirit from age to age, and there is no creation about it. The first principles of man are self-existent with God. The first principles. First. Intelligence is eternal and exists upon a self-existent principle. It is a spirit from eon to eon, age to age, and there's no creation about it, right? There's only progression. The first principles of man are self-existent with God. Self-existent with God. Is God eternal? Yes, and so are you. All the minds and spirits that God ever sent into the world are susceptible of enlargement and improvement. Right? Enlargement and improvement. The relationship we have with God places us in a situation to advance in knowledge. Gnosticism. Advance in knowledge. God himself found himself in the midst of spirits and glory. Because he was greater, he saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest who were less in intelligence could have a privilege to advance like himself and be exalted with him so that they might have one glory upon another and all that knowledge, power, and glory. So he took in hand to save the world of spirits. See that? This is the salvation of this set of gods. He took in hand to save the world of spirits. What? Two... Help lower intelligences advance to where he is. And as they advance, he advances. MLM alert. And that, this, is, this is when he uses the word save, not in an ironic sense. Remember, earlier he used the word salvation. Those who preach salvation and you know the fools, learned Christians. No, no, no. This is how he uses the word save in a positive sense. And where's the saving? Where's grace in this system? I guess that God cares that you progress is grace. Um, but you got to do it yourself. It's not. It's not really saving. It's aiding, I guess, and one's saving of themselves. This is good doctrine. <laughs> Notice doctrine, doctrine again. Sorry, not to overdo this. Not to overdo this. I just. This is good doctrine. <laughs> it's doctrine. This is general conference. Ugh. Two of the scribes even published. Their uh, writing down of the sermon to the scribes. It was published in conference discourses. <sighs> this is doctrine. It tastes good. See, it tastes good. You say honey is sweet, and so do I. Now give me your wife. Sorry, I, I said that. Uh, I can also taste the spirit and principles of eternal life, and so can you. So can you. See, he's, see, just as God instituted these laws so Joseph Smith could progress, see, he's, as this prophet, trying to do the same for us. See, he is, in a sense, like it was taught at one time, a God to this people. Yep. So, he continues. 
I tell you of these words of eternal life that are given to me by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the revelations of Jesus Christ. And these are the revelations of Jesus Christ, according to Joseph Smith. You are bound to receive them as sweet. You taste them, and I know you believe them. I rejoice more and more. I want to talk more of man's relation to God. I will open your eyes in relation to your dead. Okay. All things whatsoever God in his infinite reason has seen it and proper to reveal to us. While we are dwelling in our mortal state, in regard to our mortal bodies, are revealed to us in the abstract and independent of affinity of this mortal tabernacle. That's a pretty abstract sentence. Um, perhaps, and I'm sure Brennan and I will come back to this and go through it line by line together because it's that important. It's worth the repetition. Um, but there's a lot bound up in this. His commandments are revealed to our spirits precisely the same as though we had no bodies at all. And those revelations, which must of necessity save our spirits. See, these revelations must of necessity save because they tell us what to do and the knowledge we need. Save our spirits will save our bodies. God reveals them to us in the view of no eternal dissolution of our bodily tabernacles. Hence the responsibility, the awful responsibility that rests upon us in relation to our dead. For all the spirits who have not obeyed the gospel, obeyed the gospel, no law gospel distinction here, no, 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 obeyed the gospel in the flesh, must either obey the gospel and be baptized or be damned. Solemn thought, dreadful thought, explanation point. Now, be damned, right? So think of the latter he just mentioned. What would damning be? Be slower progression, a lack of progression, maybe falling down the ladder a little bit, as John A. Woodso uh, will later teach, relative to something Joseph Smith is about to get to. Is there no preparation for, no salvation for, nothing to be done for our fathers and friends who have gone before us and not obeyed the decrees of the Son of Man? I would to God that I had 40 days and nights to talk and to tell you all, to let you know that I am not a fallen prophet, what promises are made? What can be laid if in the grave? What kind of characters are those who can be saved, although their bodies are moldering and decaying in the grave? We are looked upon by God who dwells in eternity, in a place. Now, eternity is not this unique attribute of a timeless God who created time as one of his creatures. No, no, no. God lives in a place Joseph Smith is calling eternity, as though we were in eternity. So God can look at us and see the potential. He can see what we can become, because he himself has become what we hope to become, right? And when his commandments touch us, it is in view of eternity. He does not view things as we do, because <laughs> um, he has so much more knowledge and experience, I guess. The greatest responsibility, the greatest responsibility that God has laid upon us in this world, this world, is to seek after our dead. Seek after our dead. The apostle says, they without us cannot be made perfect. Now, I am talking of them. I say to you, Paul, you can't be made perfect without us. <laughs> he also said he suffered more than Paul. But anyway, anyway uh, you can't be made perfect without us. I will meet Paul halfway. Okay. It is necessary that those who have gone before and those who come after us 
must be made perfect and have salvation in common with us. This is the collectivism element of Mormon religion. It's, I mean, in a sense, it's radically individualistic. But in the sense that genealogy is the most visible symptom of in our world, I would think, um, this is where you get the collectivism. That we're, we as individuals need to help each other to you know, reach this uh, glorified state. For it is necessary that the seals be in our hands, no, it's not God's, our hands, to seal our children and our dead for the dispensation of the fullness of times, a dispensation to meet the promises made by Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world for the salvation of men. God has made it obligatory to man, and thus he laid it upon the eaves of the world. Hence the saying of Elijah, God said he shall send Elijah, etc. Now, Elijah was something heavily emphasized later during this period. Um, for a lot of reasons that we've covered throughout the year. Um, but just as there's development um, in his theology, the, there's going to be an emphasis on different figures that he's going to imbue with meaning and authority relevant to that time. And... Um, Elijah was, in fact, I th the, the sermon he gave the day of the burial of King Follett was on this very subject. I'll um, put a note about it in the show notes for those who are interested. I have a declaration to make in relation to the provisions which God made for every creature from before the foundation of the world to suit the conditions of man. What has Jesus said? All sins and all blasphemies, every transgression that man may be guilty of, shall be forgiven in this world or the world to come, except one. See this universalism streak? That's fascinating. Um, it's interesting because so much attention will be given to this exception, and often we miss what's an exception from. Um <laughs> All sins, all blasphemies, every transgression the man may be guilty of shall be forgiven in this world and world to come except one. That's completely taking out of context what Jesus is teaching. Um, and I think it's Mark 3. There is a provision for salvation for him, either in this world or in the world of spirits, which is to me. Hence, God has made a provision that the spirits of our friends and every spirit in the eternal world can be ferreted out and saved, saved, given the opportunity to progress, unless he has committed that unpardonable sin, which can't be remitted to him, whether in this world or in the world of spirits, period. Now, yes, in this world or the next. What about after that? That's what you got to think within this system, which is why that category of sons of perdition, it's going to shrink and shrink and shrink over time. And where... Um, with all the particularity that you'll encounter with some LDS, right underneath the surface is this universalism. Every man who has got a friend in the eternal world, or sorry, God has wrought out salvation for all men unless they have committed a certain sin. Every man who has got a friend in the eternal world can save him. See that? Every man who has got a friend in the eternal world can save him. <laughs> Based on what? 
The same principles God reveals to you, you can reveal to others, and in so doing, you are saving them. Unless he has committed the unpardonable sin, you can you can save any man. See, <laughs> where's Jesus in this system? You can save any man who has not committed the unpardonable sin. See how far you can be a savior. See how far you can be a savior. Which is why Jesus is always just an example. Uh, all here. Uh, <laughs> and for those who think that's an exaggeration, I encourage you to go back and even just click on the link for every single Sunday school of the year. I bet 98% of them or something like that. Uh, Jesus is this example. He's the example. The example. Even the virgin birth one, it's an example of being able to do the seemingly impossible. <laughs> A man cannot commit the unpardonable sin after the dissolution of the body. See, wow, we're leaving. So here's Joseph Smith. He's already limiting this thing. If you die and you haven't committed the unpardonable sin, though you can be saved in the Spirit, you can progress in the Spirit. You can accept the gospel in the Spirit. You can't commit the unpardonable sin in the Spirit. It's kind of a weird uh, quirk, I think. He cannot be damned through all eternity. Wow. He cannot be damned through all eternity. There is a way possible for his escape in a little time. So he is not particularly damned. See? <laughs> he means something different by damned. Levels of damnation, right? So, you know, if he hasn't committed the impartable sin, he's a little time, you know, and then he's not particularly damned. So don't worry. It just takes a little time. You know, he's got to go and time out, you know, 10 minutes, and then the timer will go off, and he can come out, come out of the corner. It's okay. If a man has knowledge, he can be saved. This is so key to Mormonism. That is so key. Pay attention. If a man has knowledge, he can be saved. For knowledge saves a man. Knowledge saves a man. Christ? No, no. Knowledge. Which is why Holland can uh, emphasize uh, Jesus to save, you know, why did Jesus come <laughs> to reveal um, knowledge? Interesting. There are those that are without wisdom until they get exalted to wisdom. And in the world of spirits, there is no way for a man to come to understanding and be exalted but by knowledge. Remember, this is doctrine. These are eternal truths. These are the first principles. There is no way for a man to come to an understanding and be exalted but by knowledge. If he has been guilty of great sins, he is punished for them. So long as a man will not give consent and heed to the commandments, he must abide without salvation. If he's eternally damned, it's just because he's stubborn. You see? He just won't change his mind. That's the only possibility of eternal damnation in this system, is if they just eternally refuse to change their mind and choose to obey the knowledge of Mormonism and thus start progressing. When he consents to obey the gospel, whether alive or dead, he is saved. When he consents to obey the gospel, whether alive or dead, he is saved. A sinner has his own mind, and his own mind damns him. <laughs> I could have read this on the Hell episode. <laughs> his own mind damns him. He is damned by mortification. And is his own condemner and tormentor. See, it's not the gods that do this. You do it to yourself. 
It's the natural consequences of you and your choices. Hence the saying, hence the saying, they will go into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. (laughs) So he interpreted the first verse. He's now going to interpret a verse out of (laughs) Revelation. Uh, Forget what Jesus actually says about hell throughout. Matthew's a great example. Luke, what is it, Luke 16? No, 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 no. What does it mean to go into the lake of fire and brimstone? It's that your own mind damns you, right? It's your own mind condemning you to the consequences of not progressing like you otherwise could. This is why Joseph Smith says the next line, I have no fear of hellfire. That doesn't exist. But the torment and disappointment of the mind of man is as exquisite as a lake burning with fire and brimstone. So is the torment of man, knowing, man, you could have gotten the Lamborghini, but I guess you're stuck with the Toyota Camry. (laughs) Joseph Smith, I know the scriptures. (laughs) I know the scriptures. I understand them. I said that no man can commit the unpardonable sin after the dissolution of the body. Why? Because they must commit the unpardonable sin in this world after they receive the Holy Ghost. Okay. There's some issue here, uh, in the, a textual issue here that could come, you know, after the, they receive the Holy Ghost is not in all of them. But, but still, I think that makes sense given where he's, where he's going. But some will try to, try to say it's, it's not just those who receive this gift. Um, but anyway, all will suffer in the eternal world until they obey Christ himself and are exalted. So obeying Christ himself apparently is obeying this stuff, according to him. Hence the salvation, <laughs> hence the salvation of the Savior. <laughs> Joseph, what do you mean by the word Savior? Hence the Savior, Jesus Christ, was wrought out for all men to triumph over the works of the devil. If the plan did not catch them in one place, it would in another. By instituting the plan, right? And then you obey the plan, and there you go. The devil came to save the world and stood up as a savior. The contention in heaven was that Jesus um, Jesus contended that there would be certain souls that would be condemned and not saved, but the devil said, I am a savior, and that he could save them all. He could save them all. Um, if you, I go into some of this on the War in Heaven episode last year. This is... Um, you know, is this the war in heaven? Um, this seems to be a version of it. Although I think that if you just go off of this, it's a minority view today. But clearly, there's some distinction he's making between what Jesus wanted to do and what his brother um, Lucifer wanted to do as Savior as well. So, um, and the so I am a Savior in that he could save them all. The devil could save them all. As the Grand Council gave in for Jesus Christ, the lot fell on him. The lot, <laughs> I wonder if you meant to say that. The lots, they cast lots, and okay, I guess we'll go with Jesus. <laughs> uh, I, maybe they just chose him. I don't know. That's maybe what he meant. Uh, voted for him, you know. So the council thought, okay, let's put in a vote. We vote for Jesus. Okay, we'll go with this part of the plan or this form of the plan. So the devil rose up, rebelled against God, fell, and was thrust down with all who put up their heads for him. Okay. All sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost. For Jesus Christ will save all except the sons of perdition. What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He has got to deny the plan of salvation. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it with his eyes open. 
He has got to receive the Holy Ghost, deny Jesus Christ, when the heavens are open to him, know God, and then sin against him. After a man has sinned the sin against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him, period. Interesting. But Once again, take the sermon as a whole. In this world, the next world, but what would happen next? Hence, from that time, they begin to be enemies, like many of the apostates of Christ, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There we go. It goes from sons of perdition to apostates. So this is not, it's not typically the view today anymore, which is interesting. Or maybe it's not said to be the view. Maybe it is. This would, of course, include me. But notice the, the equating all of a sudden of Christ and the church uh, there. They go too far and the spirit leaves them. Hence, when a man begins to be an enemy, he hunts me. He seeks to kill me. He thirsts for my blood. He never ceases to try to hurt me. For he has got the same spirit of the devil. See, to oppose him is to be like the devil opposing Jesus. That they had who crucified Jesus, the Lord of life. Right, The same spirit that opposes him is the same spirit of the devil who uh, crucified Jesus. Um, of they who crucified Jesus, the Lord of life. The same spirit that sins against the Holy Ghost. Wait, so to sin against whom? It's like sinning against the Holy Ghost. You can't renew them to repentance. You cannot save them. You cannot save them. You can save these other people. <laughs> you can't save them. Awful is the consequence. It's very awful. For they make open war like the devil. I advise all to be careful what you do. I advise all to be careful what you do. Stay all that here. Do not give way. Do not make any hasty moves. You may be saved. Or you may by and by find out that someone has laid a snare for you, and you have been deceived. Be cautious. Await. If a spirit of bitterness is in you, don't be in haste. Don't be in haste, okay? So, we gotta just... I need to take a sip here. Before we keep going, 